Hey y'all, you're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Welcome to the second part of our sit-down with artist Howard Finster back in the later 1990s. Quick story, at that time I was in a band, and so since other groups like Adam Again, Talking Heads, and R.E.M. had gotten Mr. Finster to do an album cover for him, so did I. That original piece of artwork on a thin board was the only thing of special value I possessed for a while, but I ended up having my own record store and often struggled financially. Well, a guy I owed money to said that if I wanted to chip off a chunk of my debt, I could give him the Finster piece, and if things improved for me later, I could buy it back. After I went out of business and got back on my financial feet, I asked the guy if I could buy the artwork back. Well, he had some bad news. His ex-wife had taken it in their divorce. We now have no idea where it is. Anyway, let's get to this recording, which I should explain that there were several other folks there visiting, including a singer named Jan Brown, who I'm pretty sure is the same Jan Brown who had a country music career in the late 80s and 90s, and for a time sang for the band Asleep at the Wheel. So let's start off with Howard's first of two renditions of a song he wrote called something like Just a Little Tack in the Shingle of Your Roof. Like that, like you would, you know, when you're young. Publicity don't 
seem to bother a person as old as I am. <laughs> so I lay down in the bed and I play my tape. In order to get the real thing and know it is a real thing, I just play the New Testament. Yeah. I play Jesus Christ. And when he gets in there and gets to preaching his parables, all of them, he can learn you more than anybody I know of in the world. Well, he's certainly used you as a vessel. Yeah, it's just great to listen to him. And I, I listened to him for a year at a time. I don't ever get tired of it. I just uh, get bored a little. I just turn my tape player on. Sometimes I go to, go to sleep at night listening to Jesus talk. Could we sing a song with you? Yeah, bring your instruments on in and make you a tape to carry back with you. You might make a hit tape and uh, make both of us some money. <laughs> Well, this is Jan That's Brown. That's about the only way I've got making anything now. It's just a little roll. My name's Jan Howard. It's nice yeah, to meet you. It's a, you. a great pleasure. There's a man come here, and he had a brand new banjo like this, and I put it on and everything. I said, I like that banjo. That banjo is uh, fits for me. You're right. The size banjo I need, you know. And uh, he said, well, if you'll paint it for me, paint art on it, I will get you a brand new one, just like it. So I painted art on his banjo, and he brought me a brand new one in the case. I train people to play, show them how to play. Daylight, getting good daylight when he walked up behind me, and I was working the garden the flower bed. And uh, I wondered why that he come to me, and it come to me the 40 years, first 40 years I was pastoring churches. I never did have time to go to houses, programs, or and be in any of his meetings. But I, I liked him. Yeah, personally liked him as a personal man. He, he seemed like a, a very gentleman-like person. He treated everybody right. You know. And I liked him and he appeared to me and it was kind of a funny way to tell a story. You know, where he walked up behind me and I stooped over working in the flower bed. You got your tape on? Yep. And uh, I felt like somebody walked up behind me. I just knew that they had. And I wondered who it was, and I just turned around. Another one looked up without getting up or anything, just like catch, you know. And I could see his shirt collar flung on down to the toes of his shoes. And I knew who he was. And it kind of startled me. I didn't know what to say. For it. it was so sudden and everything, I just didn't know what to say. It didn't appeal to me what to say to a celebrity like that in my garden, the first time I ever seen him, he appeared to me alone. And it sort of bumfuzzled me up a little, and I didn't know what to say. And the time I thought about what to say, what, I, what it was I thought to say was, 
Uh, how about staying a while? That's what I finally decided I'd say. And so I didn't even look back at him. I told him, I just asked him, I said, how about staying a while? He said, Howard, I want a tight schedule. And uh, then when I turned around to look to see the real Alice, he just wasn't there. He was gone. Wow. And that's the last I've seen of him. I was in Atlanta putting on a stage picture and talking on it. And they had an imitation of Alice there, you know. Mm -hmm. And he didn't know nothing about me having this vision of record. I don't know who he was. Several people imitated him, you know. And this fellow's imitating him, you know, and I walked over to him and I said, Hey, I said, you remember coming in my garden? And boy, he didn't know what to say about that, you know. He bumbled around a little and that crowd went into a fit on that. So they knew he didn't know about me having that vision. And after, I, after that vision got out that I had that vision, they started wanting me to come to his memorial services. So they had me to come to Mississippi at the university, you know, and make a talk. Mm. And I have a private uh, private talk with me and they said, Howard said, people said, some people believe that Alice is some kind of a God. said, we want to see what you said about that. I said, well, sir, I said, I tell you, and I said, I don't believe Alice Presley would hear no such as that of whatsoever because I said, he sung the old song, you know, how great, oh God, how great thou art. I said, Elvis wasn't the kind of a person that would, you know, pretend to be some kind of a god. I said, no, I don't believe that. I don't believe he would put up with it if he was back here, saying he's some kind of a god. And they, they didn't bother me anymore with that, but they had me this year at, at Memphis, I believe, that they had the memorial there this year, and they had me up there. And they had a statue of Alice made out of plastic. i never seen nothing like it. It went up over the university. It must have been 150 foot high. It was a sight to look at. Come down in the front of the university and, and that man that made that thing come down to the bottom of it and had me to autograph on his sleeve, you know. I've never seen nothing like that before. And then one fella heard about me on occasion. He wrote me a letter. He was a personal friend of mine. And he wrote me a letter and said, Howard said, I was sitting in Alvis's room one day. He said he was writing short notes. He said some of me just threw them in the waistband. Some of me didn't. He said, I waited till he went out of the room and he said, I got some of them notes to see what they said. And he said, one of them notes that said, Oh God, I have prayed and I have got no answer. And he says, I will put all of my trust in you. That's what I was saying. And that uh, sort of filled up with my vision. And it just come to me, if Alvis Presley give up like that old Indian did, say, here God's my $75 million, here's my gold Cadillac. Here's my wife, here's my family, here's all of it. If he answered the commitment that he made on that note, he was saved. That's what getting saved is about. Is committing your sins to Christ and asking his forgiveness. That's what it's all about. That's the way you get saved. Because in Romans 10 and 9, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, 
and shall believe in thine heart that God raised him from the dead. He says, thou shalt be saved. That means you will be. So guess work nothing about it positively. You do that, you'll be saved. That's what I told people. I said, if he met that commitment any time during his, when he was dying, I said, he got saved because he, he put all of his trust in God. That's what all his when you do that, that's all you can do, and that's all God Amen. And uh, so I have a hope of him. That's all, just a hope. But I thought it was such a wonderful person that all the million people that loved him, that the Lord would have to like him some. Yeah. And he couldn't get saved. Yeah. yeah. That's how that all got started. It's a true foundation I'm holding up the bloodstained Banner for my Lord Well, I never get tired Tired, tired of working on the building I'm going up to heaven Oh, hell again, my reward My reward Hey, is any of you and me there on some paintings that I had done for the White House? I mean, for the Library of Congress. And they had a real fancy guard that like sitting there and people questioning me. I had my paintings up on the wall, the little rod pointing at them, the stick pointing at them, talking to me about them. You know. They had done uh, several paintings under a contract of the Library of Congress. Mm. While I was interviewing me, there was a guard, one of the nicest looking guards. I never seen one as sharp as he was. He was he had it all, boy. He was going by that desk and from one room to another just watching over us, I reckon, you know. Mm. And uh, they asked me finally, said, Howard, do you do anything else besides art? I said, yeah, I'll make up songs and sing them sometimes. <laughs> make, make us sing us one. And I'd had this little song on mine for a pretty good while, but I hadn't ever got it out. And uh, I'm just a little tack in the Shangalooka roof. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's great. And uh, That's great. they called me on the Johnny Carson show. And uh, Johnny just didn't understand me at all. He couldn't figure me out. <laughs> they played that tape all over the United States, everywhere I went. Library of Congress. And I, I went to the, they, they hold a uh, art festival in the First National Bank here at Somerville every year. And they even had, uh, had that thing playing Sunday that Johnny Carson showed back behind me. Mm. Was Doc Severinsen playing in the band? Yeah, the people, yeah people, uh, people are laughing, yeah. listening at it and laughing. <laughs> and uh, they, they really had fun when I got up front of someone. The way I acted, you know, you would have never thought that I'd ever been on a program before. And uh, everybody liked that, and they just laughed all over the studio. Uh -huh. And uh, the only way I could get to meet him was after the program was over, I'd have to go to a certain place where he crossed the aisle. That's the only way I could meet him. Mm -hmm. And my daughter wanted me to get him to autograph a little card of hers, you know, a picture or something. Mm -hmm. And I met him, talked with him a little after the show was over, you know. Mm -hmm. And was cool. Pictures worth a thousand words What I've seen is what I've heard On the image right
Four and a half when we lived by y'all. Four and a half years old. Yeah. Well, gosh, I was uh, a, little, a little older than you. You're, you're a little older than me. I'll be 79 next month. She didn't know me since she's four years old. She come to see me. Do you remember my, my mother, your brother, was it old or oldest? Oldest. You remember how mother would pay attention to him. We'd help get her out to your house. She was on crutches. One of the older boys. Well, anyhow, he liked my mama. Oldest boy. She'd pay attention to him. Yeah. yeah she, he you. loved my mama. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we lived I, on I there I know Otis now, but it's Otis Brown instead of Otis Haney. And uh, of all these years, and I got 81 years old before that that you ever got to come to see me. Oh, yeah? But they like to let, they like to let me know. die before you ever got here. I uh, know. You're going to live a long time yet. Uh, I didn't know where you was at till my grandkids and her daughter and them found you. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm proud y'all found her and found her old buddy. When she was a kid, like this little great granddaughter of mine here, you know. Yeah. I remember your mother and daddy and all of them. Yeah, really. my mother dipped snuff. Do you remember that? Yeah, and all of mine did, and some of them still does. <laughs> well, everybody used to buy because they, they raised it. Lord, they just squirt that everywhere. I remember I'd get hold of my father's pipe and take a puff or two of it, and I couldn't throw a brick at a cat. He <laughs> nearly knocked me out. Yeah, yeah, it would. Since I got 81 years old, I studied about these cocaine people. I think to myself, if anybody needs anything like that, it, it'd be me, not y'all. <laughs> y'all committing suicide. Uh, one time before I was ever married, we lived close to this family, and she invited me to eat dinner with her. And she used snuff. Well, when we got through eating, just me and her, she, she kept on till I take me to a snuff. It wasn't five minutes till my dinner was out in the yard. <laughs> so I never put any more in my mouth. You know, it made you sick. Oh, it made me so sick. I vomited. Well, that was good for you. Never yeah, I never did it. use it no more. You wouldn't be living if you'd kept using that stuff. Well, I don't guess it would, but... I had to quit all that background stuff. It would kill you. Well, I don't like any of it. I was raised up with it, and I do like it. I wish I could use it right now. I'd like to have a twist of the strongest biker there are and take well, a big well, chew. We'll get you a twist. Well, uh, I, I, I don't think it's good for me. Well, you said you wished you had one. Well, I do, in a way, but that's all the flesh. I'm living in the spirit now. Okay. I'm living. I'm proud you don't use it. Yeah, I'm living for the Lord now instead of for myself. And I'm so proud I got I've lived a lot of years of myself, lived for myself. Yeah. I'm living for the Lord now. And I've uh, been living for the Lord for 40 some years. I pastored 10 different churches. Yeah. Baptized my own family. I remember baptizing my wife in the river. And I, I've been preaching ever since I was a kid. 
about 15, yeah, 18 years old. She brought me two of your books. I've, I've read a whole lot about you. Well, I don't know about my books. I, when I wrote, wrote them books, I don't know whether they're good books or not. Yeah, I'd like for you to check them out one of them and is, see if they're a good book. One of them's real good. I would hate to get up there and be condemned on account of one of my lousy books. <laughs> well, now, your know. book ain't going to hurt me. I like uh, it. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid it hurt nobody but me if I didn't write it right. <laughs> I think you wrote it right. And I'll warn all of you, if you ever write a book, be sure that it's a good book. And I, I wrote one book of 200 light years away. And it's a... Uh, all kinds of things that I had visions of and the whole book is called Visions of 200 Light Years Away. Now a vision, I don't know, you might say a vision uh, is supposed to be studied out by a genealogist or whatever they are and tell you what they mean, my visions mean. But in this vision, uh, I left Earth's planet and this big uh, missile, guided missile, and that thing was really big and had enough food to do us for 200 light years away. Had enough of everything. And our kids, we married when we got on that thing, and my old schoolmate, he married a wife, and there's just us four people. And me and my wife and him and his wife, and we was leaving, uh, and we'd signed to never return. We were leaving to never return. And we was to give back news as far as we could get. And we didn't know how, no idea how far that was. And we got so far out there, several light years away, till there wasn't no possible chance to ever get back if we wanted to go back anyhow. And we, it tells what all we'd run up on. We'd, we'd run up on uh, we, we come into darkness uh, making 30,000 uh, miles an hour and, and darkness. And we were scared, afraid we'd run into a meter or something, or another vessel. And we was awfully scared. And, and we come to find out that these other vessels up there had something on them that they, would, uh, they couldn't hit us. They were made that way. They'd go around us. Or either we would go away from them. They, they just wouldn't come together. Like two magnets on the opposite end. They just wouldn't get close to one another. And that's what saved us. And we put out transmitters every 35 years and we didn't have uh, hourly bookkeeping to do. We had yearly and decade book kid to do. And we had to keep up with all that when to put out these uh, transmitters and and we put out one of them ever 35 years and you can imagine how far we was in 35 years at 20 some thousand miles an hour to 30 according to different places areas we's in and uh, how far we was from earth and at that time we was making the biggest news that the world had ever known and we was transmitting it back through them transmitters. Oh. And we had about two or three of them out, I believe, the best I can remember. And then uh, life went on and our babies was born. And we had to be our doctor, we had to be our nurse. We had to do everything. 
There's nobody there. And when J.B. growed old and died, we had to bury him out in space. And all of us, and we was on down to the second or third generation of our family on that thing. I forgot exactly how it wound up, but finally we was, we, uh, our vessel started deteriorating just like a little dust at a time coming off of it. And uh, we had to get out from there that, when that all happened and we was, uh, uh, we was resurrected from out there. God picked us up. It's the best I can remember in the vision. That's quite a vision. Yeah, and he picked us up, and uh, and uh, the vessel, what was left of it, I reckon, it just went away in space. I've only heard a few stories, really only seen a few words. Tractor paints on plywood, covered with verse. I was to Tennessee University a year or two back, and you know, I put on shows on the spring. And finally started teaching folk art, and was called into big universities like the University of Georgia. I got the biggest campus I know of. I had two shows there. And then from there I went to Miami University. And when God called me into sacred art, that's what they showed this morning on television. As uh, on the Atlanta show, they showed me they're talking, telling them about when God called me into sacred art, how that I rubbed paint on my finger, patching a place, and looked at it, and there's a face in it, and it talked to me and said, "Paint sacred art." Mm. And uh, I talked back to it and I said, "I can't do that." And it come to me, "How do you know?" And I said to myself, how do I know? And it come to me, I know how I can find out. I'll just take a dollar bill out of my billfold and I'll tape it up on the board here and I'll start drawing George Washington up a dollar bill. And that's what I've done. And I drawed three George Washington on that steel post over it's about this big round. You still barely see the first three I drawed. Uh, on that post. I think we saw him out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, the picture I drawed for the Library of Congress under a contract, I'd done that George Washington after that. And I started joining George How long ago was that, Howard? Was oh, that? that's about in the, back in the 70s. Uh -huh. I'm on my 43,000 and 20-something pieces, I believe. 43,000. That is amazing. That sure is. It's truly amazing. Uh, from four by eight down to no bigger than your hand. Mm -hmm. I'd like to say hello to this boy here. You're eight, ain't you, son? <laughs> and uh, I'd like to say hello to this girl here, and she's six, ain't she? Four. Four? Four? Oh. Well, I missed it on you, girl. You, <laughs> we all do. <laughs> But I want to tell you young folks, we're glad to have you because we don't have many young folks out for the old people no more. This woman knew me since she was your size. And she come today to see me for the first time in nearly 80 years. Well, I never did drive, and I never could get nobody to take me anywhere. She's the size she, of this My daughter girl. will now. 
<laughs> and her daughter brought her to see me at 81. And here I sat talking to somebody that knowed me since I was a little bitty fellow. Did I wear a fertilized sack? <laughs> a whole lot. A whole lot. And the man that I'm married to wore them too when he was little. Yeah, we had our fertilizer we bought in bags for the crops, you know, for the urine. We'd buy it on a credit and pay for it in the fall. Well, that urine or fertilized sack is all the clothes and hand towels and sheets that we had when yeah. I was growing up. Well, my mother took them fertilizer sacks and made my clothes all of them. But I'll guarantee you, our, our beds was a lot cleaner and a lot of them are now. Yeah. <laughs> and they scrubbed the floors. That's the truth. That so long, help me though. God, I had it rough all my life. We didn't have no refrigerators and uh, we'd have to take our milk and put it in a jug and set it in a, in a seven quart gallon bucket and put a rope on it and let that bucket put down. Put it in the well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, when, and when we got ready to eat, we had good old cornbread and go down to the well and draw that water, uh, milk up. And boy, there wasn't nothing ever in my life any better than just crumb that good cornbread mm -hmm. in that milk and eat. Now you're talking. <laughs> That's some of the best food that I ever eat in my yeah, life. Yeah, and Howard, back then, people were good to one another a lot better than they are now to help anybody out. Yeah, they, they was poor as we was. Yeah, if they liked one another, they did. But yeah. if they didn't like one another, they did Yeah, that's true, too. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's, it's hard to keep stay out of a gun battle sometimes. But it's like, yeah, yeah. Fiction, tell about this stage in uh, Tennessee. It's the University of Tennessee, and about uh, how I got in these sophisticated places and me, uh, just a sixth grade student. That's as far as I got. Boulder, Colorado, called me one day, and I had a vision, what to tell them. And they was going to hire me for a week or at $300 a day to do something. And they wanted to know what I wanted them to do. I said, I want you to take an order and get a bunch of stuff out there, what I want you to get out there. And I said, I want to come there and build art with your university students, and I want to teach them how to do folk art. Folk art is something of your own idea. And... Uh, I don't guess they'd ever heard about anybody teaching folk art before. And they didn't know I was a sixth grade student. And a sixth grade student was doing folk art and I was teaching it. And uh, so I told them how many pieces of plywood to get, how many, uh, how many drills to bring, how many little jigsaws to bring, how many buckets of paint to get. Had everything out there ready for us to go. Well. Uh, I had made all of my dimensions and I could just pick out anything I wanted and just lay it down and draw it off and start making it. And I didn't know why, why I'd got so many of them, but I had probably 500 dimensions. I had two or three sizes of George Washington. I had George Washington from no bigger than that up to four foot across his shoulders. I had uh, Alvis Presley with his $10,000 belt buckle seven, six, seven foot tall. I had Hank Williams, uh, about six or seven foot tall, and uh, I liked to hear him sing. And there's a kid there at that school building a transfer truck out of pasteboard, cardboard, and he was getting uh, grades for it, you know. 
and he wanted us to make him a truck driver. And uh, I talked to one of the professional artists, woman in there about that. And I took the pattern of Hank Williams out of my pattern uh, and we made a truck driver of Hank Williams and he had his foot up on the fender of that truck. And a long time after that show was over, that boy wrote me and he was from uh, up in Canada, I believe, or somewhere up in the northern part of the country. And he wrote me and told me, says, Howard, I made a real good grade on that on that transfer truck I made. She all helped let me get that driver, and the driver was Hank Williams. Really? And I imagine that drawed people in from around that place that come in there just to see that truck driver, Hank Williams. And he's an interesting looking guy. Mm -hmm. And he is a religious kind of a fellow to be a drunkard. Really? <laughs> yeah, he sang songs like, uh, I, I was preaching a funeral sometime, I believe it was last year. And they requested uh, one of his songs, and nobody couldn't sing it. And I sung a verse of it myself. And I was trying to think what that song was. Yeah, I seen, I saw the light, I saw the light. No more in darkness, no more in night. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. That's Hank Williams. He could sing. And, uh, he could get drunk, as anybody you ever seen. <laughs> and he could lay out of his own money-making thing and be with a party of people having fun and never think nothing about it. And all them things. Right on the other hand, he could sing some of the most religious and wonderful songs that I've ever heard. And I like, I like his sacred songs. I still like to sing them. You want to sing a verse of that? Sure. too old to preach. Boy, you start preaching, you get a little bigger and take my place, because I hadn't preached in a while. I need somebody to take my place and start pastoring churches and preaching. Somebody with that much energy, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you got an interesting, two little interesting children. That girl is really a pretty little girl. Well, thank you. I, uh, I took him about... Um, when he was five, down to your uh, exhibit at the High Museum in Atlanta. Yeah. And, Have they uh, been in the garden? Well, this is the first time we've been wanting to come, but uh, we had then the, we had this one and kind of got waylaid a little bit, so she's big enough now. Well, when y'all see that garden, kids, don't think I'm crazy because <laughs> I'm not. Well, we got your book, so we know. How, I, I read it to them, so they can. Uh, yeah. You know, describe and, you well, know. I wonder about my books. There's four or five of them now. This is the one that Mary Ellen Mark is in, and um, the one. That a few years ago in California, they were raising sand about these fast planes that were making. They got a hawk 
Blackhawk Night makes 3,000 miles an hour, and there was a shaking the earth in California. And there was a telling about it, you know, and they're going to have to do something about it because part of California hangs out over the ocean, and it's kind of a sandy kind of a place like, and they're afraid that they'd finally cause an earthquake or something in there, you know. And, and it made me feel bad to think about these terrible planes and uh, uh, Random House was pr printing a book on me along about that time that is that. and it come to me what for them to do about that and this is what come to me now this is one of my visions it come to me that if they would put a channel all the way through that jet that when it was making 700 miles an hour on the outside the air would be going 700 miles an hour through that channel, right through it. Mm -hmm. And it'd be just like it'd be an iron post going through it. It couldn't go no which way. Mm -hmm. And uh, John Turner in San Francisco helped me put my book together. And he's not even a book writer, but he's done a good job. And uh, he cut that plane in two in that book and showed that channel going through it. And after that, I never did hear no more about that vibration stuff. I believe with all of my heart that these fast planes they got right now, I don't believe they put a channel through there as big as I had it, but I believe it gave them an idea, and I believe they got channels going through them planes, maybe no bigger than your finger, and that where the air starts in them, it's like a funnel, and where it goes out of them, it's smaller, and they put them things in that plane, as many of them as they wanted to, and it's took all of that concussion out of it uh -huh. and done away with it, but they can't afford to give me any credit for it because I'm a sixth grade student. <laughs> I, think, I think you got enough credit, don't you? <laughs> don't go back to like to get some more stories and visions of Mr. Finster, check out our first conversation on In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, episode 264. Or if you just want some more good country storytelling, maybe episodes 256 and 261 will be of interest to you, where my Uncle Paul tells of some of his adventures growing up in Kentucky and Indiana. Also, all the music from today 
are songs that are about Mr. Finster, or they are on albums that the artist did the artwork for, or there's just some other connection. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can find this podcast on iTunes, podbean.com, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you would like to send us some love letters, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.